How you doing, guys? It's Jamar Nutter here, and you're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Gardemeyer Chefu gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997. And we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? Doing good, Tommy. How you doing yourself? You know, I'm ecstatic as I usually am. But you know what? This Today's interview is going to take us before my time as a fan. So... When we were doing research for this, all this stuff was brand spanking new to me. It just excites the heck out of me. This interview is taking me back before I was born. No, <laughs> no, disrespect, to, no disrespect to Greg Tynes, but he's an old-time, all-time Seton Hall great. And just like you mentioned, we've said this numerous times before we, you know, when we do a preview to these interviews, that some guys' stories are kind of lost as we go through the years. Greg was at the top of the charts in so many categories as a Seton Hall ball player when he retired. And we were lucky enough to kind of get to revisit Greg this past year when Miles passed him on the scoring list. But like you said, when we started going back to do this research, I'm impressed. He's got a resume that is a mile long, shop filled with accomplishments that most people would just dream or be lucky to just have reached one of those milestones in their lifetime. And Greg has reached so many. So to tell his stories today and get a chance to ask him questions. I I really am excited. He is an all-time great for Seton Hall University. Second in Seton Hall history with 2,059 points at graduation. Fifth in all-time scoring average at 18.7. Sixth in assists with 379. His senior year, he was elected All-East. Honorable mention, All-American and 1978 New Jersey Player of the Year. After his playing days were done, he coached high school basketball for 31 years, finishing with third most victories in Essex County history and three New Jersey State Championships. Welcome back! To Left Coast Pirates Live, Greg Tynes. Greg, how are you today? Good afternoon. How are you? Doing well. Thanks again, Greg, for joining. Glad to be here. Hey, before we get going, you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and this is kind of our new routine as we kick off the show. We're faced with the coronavirus, and how do we get back to normal, or even should we? And on top of that, we've been dealing with all the protests and riots over social injustice. So first off, how is everyone in your family doing? Are they healthy and safe? Yes, everyone is doing well. I was retired, so so I was home anyway. Uh, my wife has been working from home. My stepson, he's he was at home. He's in the seventh grade. Well, he just he's going to the eighth grade now. So everyone is fine. Everyone is healthy. All right, Greg, you've been around basketball your entire life, from playing as a kid in the early 70s to still coaching today. 
From your experience, has this country evolved in terms of racism and social injustice in the past 50 years? And what else do we still need to achieve? Things have changed in the last 50 years, but not a lot. Not a lot of things have changed. Um, it just, it, it's, it seems as though things have changed, but there's still things going on. I'm so glad that there's video cameras and phone cameras that, that can bring things to light because things, the, the same stuff that was going on 50 years was still going on in some areas, but people weren't recording and now things are being recorded. So I think that um, things will change soon in the coming future, but I don't think there's been a lot of change. Well, that's what we're hoping from this side here, you know, that people can actually see the problems that are happening and learn from them and move in a better direction. I mean, we're all human here. Now, without coming up with some slick uh, segue of getting into it, we're just going to jump into your career history here, Greg. Now, you were a star for Orange High School way back in the day, and you started making a name for yourself as a junior back in 1972-73. And then in your senior year, you were as good a player as anyone in the state, and you led Orange High to that 29-1 and mark that winter. I mean, your team was scoring over 100 points in almost a dozen games. And your only loss came in that Essex County Tournament final where you lost to East Orange at Walls Gym of all places to in a standing room crowd. So you came in heavily favored. You were 29-0. What happened? I would say we came in favored. I wouldn't say heavily favored because East Orange had a really good team. They won the group four state championship that year. We had beat them twice during the season. So we came in favorite, but they had their backcourt. Kenny Young was an all-state player who went to Duke. Reggie Baker went to Bucknell. They had Mike Booker was a great player, Cleveland Eugene. So they had they had a very good team. I mean, it, it wasn't like it, it was just out of the rim that they could beat us. I mean, they beat us. I mean, it's hard to beat a team three times, especially a very good team. And and uh, they made a comeback midway in the fourth quarter and they took the lead and, and that kind of, I guess, shocked us. And we didn't recover. I think we lost by, if I'm not mistaken, it might have been 74, 71. We lost by three or by four points, something like that. I know we had a, a five-point lead, and they scored nine straight. I remember that. And that would kind of hurt us in the fourth quarter. Yeah, we like teasing these sports broadcasters during the season when they pull out the old, the old gems like, you know, it's hard to beat a team three times in the season, but I guess it's true. Now, we actually found a quote from you after the game, and you said something of the sort, I think I had two guys on me for just about the entire second half. Now, you had an outstanding team around you, obviously, but the blueprint seemed to be to try let the other guys beat them and just slow you down. Is that how it kind of went in that game? Well, yes, in that game, I mean, I had I played with four really good players. Uh, they were all starters as sophomores, and I was a JV player as a sophomore. So they, they was always in front of me. But our senior year, I became the, um, I guess, the go-to guy. I had improved over those summers after my sophomore year. And uh, during the second half of the game, they went to a, um, a triangle and two defense, and they put two guys on me, which I've never seen that before. And uh, they left some guys open and, you know, because uh, I had a very good first half. So they went to a triangle and two. So I didn't score. A, I may have scored 10 points in the second half. So I didn't score a great deal of points in the second half. I think I ended the game with 28, but I had a very good first half. I mean, their coach, Bob Lester, was, is a great coach. And there was no doubt about it. And like I said, 
they had they had great players. Like if you have a point guard that goes to Duke, the other guard goes to Bucknell. Uh, Mike Booker went to um, Northern Illinois first, then he went to Upsala College, and Cleveland Eugene, I think, at one point might have led the country in scoring in junior college or something like that. So they had a team, <laughs> they had a very good team. Greg, B- Bob Lester was a great coach, but a triangle in two? I, I haven't seen a triangle in two since I was back in like sixth grade playing like local rec league. No one plays a triangle in two at a high school level, even beyond. Come on. Seriously? Well, during that time, there was quite a few guys who have a box in one, a triangle in two. It was a, it was a lot, a lot of Mickey Mouse defenses, I would say. Uh, even as a coach, I used them um, just to throw people off because sometimes when you when you run a box in one or a triangle in two, some coaches don't know whether to run their man offense against you or their zone offense. Sometimes you just throw it in as a wrinkle just to see what the opposing coach would do. So as as a as a player in high school, I saw that a lot. We saw that we, you know, I, I saw that a lot. It was difficult to do that because I did play with some really good players. I had a great shoot in Donald Wells, good forward in Dennis Holmes, strong inside player in Dickie Johnson, and a good point guard in Ed Butler. And, and our bench was really good. As you can see, we scored, I think we might have scored over 100 points 11 times. We led the state in scoring. We averaged 89.9 points a game, and it wasn't a three-point shot. So those was all twos and ones. So we, we were a very efficient offensive team. The box and one kind of makes sense, but when you go triangling two, you're leaving too many other options open. Uh, that's just a very surprising D, but apparently it works. So what am I to say? Mike's just saying? jealous that they weren't guarding him in that triangle in two. They wouldn't have been guarding me, Tommy. Trust me. I would have been the, the odd man out. Trust me. No jump shot over here, Greg. All right, let, let's move on. So obviously you're getting notoriety. You're the go-to guy. You're the star. So you're probably heavily recruited, but I, I don't want to date you here, Greg, but, but I'm going to. Back then, in your day, there was no social media, no cell phones, no internet. What was the recruiting process like? Well, we did have AAU back then, and it wasn't as many teams. So the AAU teams that existed was pretty stacked. Like, for instance, um, the New York team, they had Bernard King, George Johnson from St. John's, a guy named um, Al Baker as a guard. I mean, that was their team. The the Baltimore team had... um, Kenny Carr, who went to North Carolina State, Larry Gibson from Maryland, Skip Wise, who ended up going pro right out of high school to a, a expansion team that folded, so he never got to go to college because he had signed a contract. Uh, Boston had James Bailey from Rutgers. I mean, so those games meant a lot. We played; Those were the best high school players in the country all played AAU on a certain team. It wasn't like these guys are spread out or they all on one team. I mean, so I played with the North team. I was the only guy from Orange with the North team. We had uh, Edgar Jones who played in the NBA for a while. Guys who played at um, Dave Brown who played at um, Iona. So we had a good team. So recruiting was, um, it was harder for, for coaches to recruit. They had to actually go to games. I mean, they go to game. And I actually didn't get heavily recruited until after that county tournament game. Uh, Seton Hall came in to see another one of our players during the season. They, I wasn't even called out of class to come see Hadi Mahan. They, they weren't interested in me. But once that game came, and I've never had a bad game in Wall's gym before I went there as a student. I didn't have too many as a student there either, but I didn't have too many. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
once during the summer an AAU came, then everybody started coming in after that game. Um, I guess because I was small at 6'1", and I always played the two position. I guess it might have been a question on whether I could be the point guard because I could dribble the ball. I mean, I played... So in AAU, I played point because I could dribble, but most people saw me as a scorer, and I guess they wasn't sure whether I would make the sacrifice to be a passer or not, or, or you know, to be that guy. So I guess once they saw that, then I got recruited more. You don't take the ball out of a scorer's hands. I'm sorry, it's just not the way it works. Some people were just born to put the ball in the basket. So, all right, so everyone's coming out to watch you now. As you say, who are some of these other programs that were kind of after you uh, outside of Seton Hall? Well, in my yearbook, I have Indiana. I had talked with assistant coach, never the head coach. That's where I wanted to go to, Indiana. I had school by the name of Moorhead in Kentucky. My vice principal, he wanted me to go to Dartmouth. Pete Carell was interested in me in Princeton because I – I was ninth in my class, in my graduating class. I was a pretty good student. <laughs> so I was looking at some Ivy League schools, but I was I knew I wasn't that type of student. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I wanted to stay home. I mean, it meant a lot for me from where I grew up at. You know, I grew up in an orange housing project, and it, it felt good for me to come home and um, to be close, to have all my friends come see me play, because... Mind you, I was used to be to playing and sold. Every one of our high school games was sold out. Every place we went, it was people waiting outside. It was almost like a, our team was like a rock star team. So, I mean, I wanted to be close. I had got used to all my friends and family coming to my games. We had you on earlier in the year when Miles was about to pass you on the scoring list. And I don't know that we came through all your numbers appropriately, Greg. You know, as we're doing our research, your numbers still blow off the page here. Right now, you're fifth all-time in scoring with 2,059 points. You're still seventh on the scoring average with 18-7. Second in field goals made. Tenth in free throws made. Fifteenth in total assists. And you started off your freshman year really strong with 13.6 points, four assists, three rebounds, 34 minutes a night. The team had some success as a 16-11 and 11 team. Now, after being a star your senior season at Orange, was it hard to transition to the college game and being that fourth option at that point? No, not really. Uh, Glenn Mosley was a good friend of mine. We had played against each other in high school, so he was on campus. So I used to go there and, and play there anyway during my senior year of high school. Just go there and shoot around. I loved the gym. It was a parquet floor or parquet looking floor you know I love playing there so it, it wasn't a a, a a big transition and I came in hungry I mean they, they had a, a all East guard Paul late was there so I didn't start I think I started the sixth game of the year it was my first game start I didn't start the first five and then I started the sixth game of the year so just coming out of high school I, I don't remember ever getting tired so I came into college you know, being probably the fastest on the team and and never getting tired. So I just came there just to run, to keep running and running. I was so hungry to want to play because I had enjoyed playing. I didn't want to go back to the bench. So I wanted to um, just do everything I can to earn minutes. All right, Greg. So that season on paper, it looked like the toughest opponent that you guys had was number 20 Rutgers. People kind of forget that Rutgers was actually good during this time. They had a stretch where they made the postseason eight out of 10 years at one point. People probably can't even fathom that nowadays. 
Uh, but unfortunately, they also had your team's number winning four out of five times over the four years that you played there, including an 89 to 81 setback that specific season. What was the in-state rivalry like? Was it as intense and important back then for college hoops in New Jersey as it is today? It was intense, but I don't know if it's as important today. I, you know, it's hard to say. We were friends with those guys. Um, so we used to go to the, to the campus and play. They have very good pickup games, but they had a, a really good team. Um, you know, they had Phil Sellers, the best player in New York City. They had Eddie Jordan at one guard who played in the NBA. Mike Dabney, who was from East Orange at the other guard. Hollis Copeland at a forward and then James Bailey. So, I mean, the thing about Rutgers that made it, it was a really a difficult game for us is because Eddie Jordan is a great defensive player, but Eddie didn't guard me and Mike Dabney didn't guard me. They would put Hollis Copeland on me, who's 6'6", with very long arms, who's just as quick. And it was pretty, you know, it pretty much, I'm not going to say shut me down, but it made it difficult to have a 6'6", defensive specialist who's just as fast with long arms who could give me space and challenge my shot so it, it was just a, a, a very hard matchup problem for us you know we, we couldn't match up with them I think the one game maybe my sophomore year in the barn they really gave it to us they beat us about 30 some points one game um, I think it was my sophomore year they, the game the year they went to the final four they really beat us bad all right, so let, let's fast forward to that sophomore season. Your team's 18 and nine. Your game starts to elevate. You're now up to 18 and a half points per game. You're still averaging four assists, grabbing three boards. And that team actually finishes the season 13 and three down the stretch, but doesn't make the postseason. And I kind of look back at the schedule, and it's mainly due to the early season start of a two and five record versus a gauntlet of a schedule. So bear with me here for a second. Opening night, neutral site versus number four, North Carolina, 11-point setback against Dean Smith and seven future NBA players against a team that finishes first in the ACC. Then you play that game at Rutgers, the very next game that you're mentioning. You lose 119-93. to That team is the team that ultimately goes on to the Final Four, where they're 31-0 before they lose uh, in the national semifinals in the consolation game. Then you play at number two, Maryland, in a setback against Coach Lefty Drizel and John Lucas, a two-time All-American. And then last but not least, you're at Alabama, number eight in the country, who finished first place in the SEC and also had four future NBA players on that roster. So there are some great names and historical names on that list. What memories stand out from those games in particular? Oh, well, the North Carolina game. <laughs> <laughs> that stands out because they're starting five were first-round draft picks. Bill Ford, Kushner, Tommy Lagarde, Walter Davis, and Mitch Kupchak. That was their starting five. So on a, I never forget the opening tap. They got the ball, um, I believe, Kupchak missed the layup, Lagarde missed the layup, Walter Davis grabbed it and got fouled. Like, they was all above the rim, and it was just Glenn down there. And I said, wow. And um, so Walter Davis made... You know, he made either both or one of the free throws. And when, after that, we took the ball out. And we took the ball out, they gave it to me. And Phil Ford was right on me. I had to go the length of the court. And I never forget, I turned to him and I said, 
nobody can cover me 94 feet. <laughs> and I had my, I think I scored 23. I had probably my best game. And Phil Ford, at the time, Ricky Green from Michigan was known as the fastest guard in the country. But after the game, Phil Ford said that I was the fastest guard he ever played against. And I felt good. And, and the thing about the reason that it stands out, when Tommy Amerika became the head coach at Seton Hall, there was a, a, a big high school tournament thing there. And Phil Ford was there. And I told Tommy, I said, it's Phil Ford. He said, go over there and say something to him. I said, he doesn't know me. I said, he doesn't know who I am. He said, yes, he does. So I went up to him. I said, I said Phil, how you doing? Uh, my name is Greg Tynes. He said, Greg Tynes, you that skinny guy that kicked <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was shocked. And I was shocked. And the reason Tommy said that, Tommy told me that when he went back to North Carolina that season, they was teasing him saying, you better hope he doesn't pull a Greg Tynes on you. you <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have a name. They would say, you better hope they don't pull a Greg Tynes on you. So they teased him. And I didn't know that, but that was the best game. I mean, the best thing that I can remember my sophomore year. Also, we played Maryland. I had a good conversation on the court with um, John Lucas, too, uh, because I was, when I first saw him, we went to practice. He's only about 6'2". He was listed as 6'4". Mo Howard was was listed at 6'2". He's about 5'10". But Brad Davis, the other guard, he's was listed 6'3". He's legitimate 6'3". So I was just saying, oh, John Lucas, he's just like my height, a little shorter. So I really was going at him. I was doing the best I can. Next thing I know about it, second half, he's talking to me about tennis. And, 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 <laughs> and, and now he plays in Montclair, and there's a lot of nice-looking girls in Montclair. And, and we become friends on the court. He ended up with 30 points or whatever, you know. I remember those games. Um but Lucas, I, I think I was always mentally ready to try to prove something to um, those guys with the names. Like I really, you know, Phil Ford really, I guess, just for anyone, anyone to try to guard somebody baseline to baseline when everybody's in the front court, I just think that's impossible. And, I, and like I said to Phil, I said, nobody can do this. Nobody. All right. You, you kind of already mentioned how good that Rutgers teams was. You rattled off some of the names. And I, and I gave the score. How do you give up 119 points to Rutgers? 119 in the college game? Well, the barn was a small gym, and they had the fans, and they were all around us. And once they got it going, they got it going. I mean, they 119. I know it was a lot. I mean, what do we have, 79 or something no, you like that? You guys had 93. You guys, you guys were respectable. Okay, but we were both running, and I think, I think they took us out of our game. After we got down, it's either you're going to slow it down and try to keep the score down and just lose, or you're going to make a run at them. And we had guys on our team that wanted to win, so we made a run at them. But we're definitely we're not better at that game than Rutgers was, and the score proved it. But we tried to run with them and press with them and get up on them. And they had five fast guys who had size, who were tall. So... But we had no choice because we didn't just want to just pack it in at halftime and just take the loss. So we tried to run with them. You know, if there's any solace in that game is that's the last time Rutgers was any good anyway. Moving on to your junior year, though, the big names still keep on coming. Early in that season, you had a neutral site game against Tennessee. You end up losing 99 to 90. But what we found interesting was 
That team had Bernard King and Ernie Grunfeld. Now, younger listeners might have seen this team in the Bernie and Ernie documentary on the 30 for 30 that they had. Now, those two guys, they combined to average over 48 points a game. And in that particular game, it was their third leading scorer, Mike Jackson, who went off for a career best 33. What else do you remember about that game? And what was it to go up against such a great duo of teammates? Okay, well, Bernard was a forward, and so was Ernie Grunfeld. Ernie Grunfeld might have been the two. Mike Jackson was a guard. He was the guard who had the good game. And he was he was the third or fourth leading scorer in their conference. So he wasn't a guy that just had a good game. They had Bernard, Ernie Grunfeld, somebody else in the conference. Then Mike Jackson was the fourth. So he, he was a player. What I remember about that game is they won. Bernard King is Bernard King, and Ernie Grunfield is Ernie Grunfield, but Glenn Mosley was giving it to both. <laughs> Glenn Mosley had a two-handed block of a Bernard King's dunk where they both met over top of the white box, the white square, and it well, off to the side of the white square, and they both came down. It was a jump ball. It was probably the best block I ever seen in my life. But Glenn was giving it to Bernard King. He was giving it to, and we had, and I had knew Bernard from playing against him in high school, and we stayed in the same hotel. So you know, we had hung out. We talked a little stuff to them. I mean, they were ranked. They were a good team. We talked <laughs> the stuff the night before, you know, and and Glenn gave it to him. And and I think I mentioned that during the game while we were playing because Bernard caught <laughs> me with an elbow and said, oh, baby, "I'm giving it to you." But Glenn played a great game. I mean, I mean, Glenn made my life so easy. I mean, he made it he made it easy. Um, in terms of my man beat me, I knew Glenn was back there waiting. He had probably the best timing of anybody I ever played with the block shots. Glenn made life simple. Now, you mentioned Glenn giving it to Bernard, but that season, it seemed like the team itself was giving it to everybody, at least on the offensive side. You were scoring 21 points a game. Glenn was averaging about 20 and 16. The team also had Nick Galis and Randy Duffin scoring double digits, and the team itself scored 84 points a game, which ranks second in school history. Now, would you call this the best team you played with during your time at Seton Hall, or was there a better team somewhere out there? Yes, I think that was the best team. My um, Glenn senior year, my junior year, when Nick was in the backcourt, Randy Duffin could shoot the ball. We had Mark Coleman. I mean, at one time, I think we had the lightest team in the country. I think at one time, Nick Gallus, who was the shortest, was probably the heaviest. I think we had everybody was under 200 pounds. We, <laughs> we had, you know, but yeah, that my, my junior year, because Mark was a really good defensive player and Randy Duffin could shoot the ball. I mean, he, he could shoot it from way, way out. If we had a three-point line, then we would have won a lot. A lot more games because all Randy shots were threes. All the Randy Duffin shots were threes. So he, I mean, he was out where Miles shoots from now. That's where Randy Duffin shot from. But because I was on the team and Glenn was on the team and Nikki was on the team, wasn't a lot of shots for Randy. (laughs) He probably would have got more shots because we would have needed those threes. We had needed threes. All right. So the team does reach the postseason that year. And you play in the first round of the NIT at UMass. And Seton Hall loses a thriller, 86-85. to Glenn goes off for 20-17, and in line with his averages for the year. Duffin scores 23. Galas puts the Hall up by one with a driving bucket with 12 seconds to play. But UMass pulls it out with seven seconds to go. We found a funny Raph quote after that game. And it goes, you know, it was an up-and-down struggle. 
We made errors, and you don't make errors against good teams. We didn't guard. At times, I thought a couple of our guys were out buying sodas. Do you agree with Raf that the defense was lacking that night? Yeah, um, I can't think of uh, their guards that they had at UMass, but I used to work with one in a program in sports rescue in, in New York. I can't think of his name. He was pretty good. Their guards had a good game. Their guards did a lot of penetration. And uh, I have to say that UMass, you said they took the lead with seven seconds to go. I have to take the good with the bad. I made a very bad pass um, during that game. We we called the timeout. We had to go the length of the court, and I had to take it out of bounds underneath, and I threw a long pass over half court to Randy Duffin. But, you know, it curved, and it went out of bounds, and it was too close to the sideline for him to really catch it and get control of it. So it touched his hands, but he's not a receiver, not a football guy. So I, he was stretched over the line, so it really went through his hands and went out of bounds. It was a bad pass on my part. So we never got an opportunity to take the last shot, which was on me. It was my pass. It was a good play set up, but it just wasn't a good long pass. How so difficult is it to end the season like that, though, Craig? I mean, to, to go out not getting that final shot, to know that it's going to end in the postseason on, in, a, in a tough loss, and, and, and know that there's finality in that season. How difficult is that? Yeah, it was tough. You know, I, I probably didn't say anything after the game because I, I didn't I didn't say too much after losses. I didn't I didn't talk. I remember as a freshman when we lost our first game and I was upset in the locker room and and one of the seniors, John Ramsey, said, he said, Greg, you're not at orange anymore. You're gonna get used to lo- losing. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I said, I'm never gonna get used to losing. I'm gonna show you how to be a winner. I never forget I told him that I said, I'm gonna show you how to be a winner. So I didn't. I wasn't used to losing, whether it was summer league. So I know that after that game, I was really, um, I was really upset because I think in high school for my four years, I think I lost seven games. So I wasn't used to um, just just losing games. Especially I blew the game. I blew a chance at having the opportunity to take the last shot because I know if Duffin would have got a good look, he would have nailed it. All right. So the the light life goes on. You move on to your senior year. And you had a great year. I mean, you're still averaging over 20 points a game. You're New Jersey Player of the Year. You got All-American honorable mention. But the team didn't have as much success. 16-11, and 1-5 in the, you know, the NJ New York 7 conference that was kind of starting to develop. And the schedule was kind of really unbalanced when I kind of look back. The first eight games were away or at a neutral court site, followed by the next seven games home at Walsh. Nowadays, Kevin Willard would have a field day with the media if that is the way that the schedule was laid out. You know, how challenging was it to start the season playing so many games away from Walsh? Well, offhand, I don't remember that. But just before I answer that, I just want to go back to my junior year. I just want to mention that I would have to look at the ball behind me to see the exact game. But, <laughs> but Glenn Mosley Glenn Mosley and I went over 1,000 points in the same game. That's kind of cool. That's very cool. I don't think that ever happened at Ceno. We went over he went over his thousand first and I went over mine in the second half. But I just wanted to throw that in there because I don't think that ever happened. Two players on the same team getting a thousand and in the same. It was it was early in our junior year. Well, my junior year, his senior year. But going back to the season, I enjoyed playing at Walsh because of the crowd and the fans and my friends and family could be there. But I like playing on the road. I like being that villain guy. So I like to be on the road. And it, it never made a, a big difference because I always looked at it. The court is 
between 84 and 94 feet. Rims are 10 feet high. It, 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 if the rims are really tight, put a little bit more arch on your shot. I didn't care where we played at. You know, I, it, it never, it never was a problem playing on the road. I never looked at myself. I never thought somebody personally had a home court advantage. You know, I never looked at it like that. So I don't even remember that we played so many games away in the beginning. And I probably didn't think about it then. I probably was just looking at the opponents and who their their backcourt was. <laughs> well, it seemed like that senior season, nobody on the team really cared about where they played because they could shoot that basketball no matter where it was. I mean, Nick Galis was shooting 52%. Randy Duffin as well at 52%. Dewan Scott at an incredible 60% yourself at 48 the team was shooting almost 50 percent anyway so it didn't matter what made that team so efficient from the field especially with your three guards taking the bulk of the shots well we had to make up for glenn mosley so we knew that when we came now court we had to be more efficient you know dewan who was my roommate at the time he was a very good big man a great big man but glenn mosley's glenn mosley you know so he was missed nikki gallus was um well, you could see after I graduated what Nick Galis did. He scored a lot of buckets. Um, so Nick was Nick was tough, and Randy could always shoot. So we all knew our role. We knew that um, any given night, any player could score. And Nick knew that he could take his man whenever he wanted to. I felt as though I could take my man whenever I wanted to. Whenever Randy's man would help, we knew that we could kick it to Randy. And anytime Randy's open... He was going to make the shot. So it's just the key to Randy not being, not taking shots off the dribble, just drawing his man and giving him the shots. And then when push comes to shove, we could drop it inside to Dewan or we have Mark Coleman. Mark would hit those jump shots too. <laughs> so you, you keep on bringing up Glenn. Glenn is obviously have his number retired here at Seton Hall. I mean, you, you obviously talk fondly of Glenn. For those who haven't got a chance to see Glenn, obviously Tom and I did not. Can you just spend a couple more minutes going there and telling, telling the fans how great Glenn really was? Yeah, Glenn was 6'8", weighed maybe 190 pounds at the moment, didn't, didn't weigh 200. And he just had remarkable timing. I mean, to block shots, he had a, a beautiful jump shot. And then he was so smooth. I mean, he, I would play defense. I would play on the side of my man to, to lead him to Glenn. So I would get block shots from the back because I know that he had to pull up for Glenn. You know, and even with Glenn, I, I think I became... My, my freshman year I was a point guard. My sophomore year I was a two guard. But we tried to get it to Glenn. Glenn said, "Don't worry about. Don't worry about that. Just put it up there. I go get it." <laughs> Either I would throw an alley oop, or I would just shoot it. You know, he would rebound. I mean, Glenn was he made life simple. You know, he didn't because he didn't want to post up because he didn't have really an inside game. Either was dunking an alley oop or shooting a turnaround jump shot like a like a Patrick Ewing type like that but just smaller but glenn made glenn made things simple i mean i i love playing with him he's one of the reasons i went to seton hall because we we played against each other in high school his senior year my junior year we beat him um we beat him both times of course um but i almost we almost lost one time because i missed a foul shot with um with maybe five seconds to go and we were down one i missed the foul shot but it bounced back to me and i made the the field goal to win at the buzzer because if I would have, if we would have lost, I don't know if I could, how <laughs> my friends were. But Glenn was the, oh man, Glenn was something. I love playing with us. Somebody just put something on Facebook about him uh, when he made, um, he was player of the year in New Jersey the year before me. Um, 
and I and I said, let me just open it, read the article, and I saw that the first team was Glenn, uh, myself, uh, Zawinski from Princeton, I think, and Eddie Jordan and James Bailey. You know, I looked at that team because I said, why everybody keeps sending me this article on Glenn? <laughs> and then I just put and I just put best teammate ever. I always say that. I always tell me he was the best teammate ever. But but six seven and wiry, fifteen point two rebounds per game for his career, which is the greatest average since nineteen seventy three in NCAA history. Six seven. I mean, that just that number does not get as much recognition as it should. You know, everyone's kind of touting Angel Delgado for what he accomplished, and they really didn't kind of go back and talk about Glenn. He had time, you know, he had long, pretty long arms, but he had just time and he was quick off his feet. I mean, he was just he was just so quick. When he missed a shot, just tap, tap, tap. He was just quicker than everybody. He's the first one at the rim, and guys would try to knock him around. He would just bend up and tap it still. I mean, he was – I can, I'm just see. – I'm running back plays in my head when he did certain things, which was unbelievable. I remember I threw a pass, and, and I'm telling you the truth. It was up by the top of the backboard. It was over top of the white square, but it was really close to the top of the backboard, and it was a crucial point of the game. And, you know, you shouldn't try alley-oop then. I said, oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Clem went up and got it and dunked it. And I thanked him. Not, <laughs> I, I thanked him for saving my butt because I know Raph would have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he just went and got I knew he couldn't get that, but he went and got it. I mean, he, he was something else. When we talked to you earlier in the year, we were asking you, as you rolled into your senior season, you had an outside shot at catching Nick the Quick Workman's all-time school scoring list. I mean, we did some number crunching, and we we came up with you needed to score 28 points per game to pass Nick. Now, that's a crazy number, especially without the three-point line. Obviously, you were a fantastic scorer, and you actually dished well. What are you most proud about in your game from your days at Seton Hall? One of the things I'm most proud about is that Seton Hall University gave me a scholarship to play basketball, and I never missed one game. I hurt my ankle my senior year. That's when I realized I wasn't going to catch um, Nick Workman when I hurt my ankle, but I didn't sit out any games. You know, my, my and I think at the time, I might have been averaging 24, and my average went to 20 or 21. You know, it dropped a little bit. And I was like a decoy, <laughs> but um, that's what I remember. You know, I, I think it was a great trade-off. You, they gave me a scholarship. I gave them everything I did on the court. And I didn't miss a game. I didn't sit out. I believe I gave everything I could on the court for four years. So th that's one of the things I, I most remember. That, that, that's a heck of a decoy at 20 points a game, I'll tell you there, Greg. Before we put a wrap on your seat in Hall days, we'd love to ask you a few questions about RAF. Now, when we had Danny Calandrill on, he talked about how he would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Raph in practice. Now, most people know Coach as a fun-loving guy behind the mic with the crazy quips, but who was Raph as a coach? What was his demeanor? How did he run practice? Did he work the sidelines like uh, like what we see nowadays? What What is your impression as Raph the coach? Raph was really tough. And if we didn't execute properly or if we were playing lazy, he, he loved to run suicides. We ran a lot of suicides. I, I thought they was unfair because I had to win every one. And if I didn't win, after we got to maybe four or five, then Glenn could beat me. It was okay because I couldn't beat Glenn after we did four or five, but I could beat everyone else. So if I didn't win, we had to do it again. And guys are trying to win. You know, guys are trying to win. So 
he was he was really tough in that respect. We were in shape. There's no doubt about that. We were shape. We were in shape. And I think just as a as a person, he taught me a lot about being a man. I mean, for me to go from my parents to Coach Raftery, I couldn't ask for a, a, a better coach, a better mentor than he was. I mean, he taught me a whole lot. I mean, to this day, we talk. When I became a high school coach, he came to my games. I asked him stuff. He, you know, he helped me with that. So he was a. Um, I just think he's an amazing person. And if I had to do it all over again. I would go to Seton Hall and play for Coach Rafter. Now, this is actually the second time you mentioned that when you were talking about him, you said you learned more about being a man or and, and about life from Raft than anything else. Is there any specific example you can share with us? I just think, see, the thing about a lot of people were afraid of Rafter, and I wasn't afraid of any man. <laughs> so I used to always talk to him. Just, just, I'll go back to your question. Just specific examples was that when we went to away places, like we went to Georgetown, the team would get four cars. The coaches would have two and the players would have two. But now I was a freshman, so the seniors would get the cars. But the seniors, they hung together. It was uh, LaCourt and Ramsey. So they were, they were together. So they would just use one car and have the other one sitting there. So I went to coach. You know, I asked Glenn to do it, but Glenn didn't want to do it. So I <laughs> He said, I have license. Why can't we do this? Why can't we have a vote? And we voted. So I was able to get a car after that. I was able to get a car for this younger guy. So whenever there was a situation, I was like a spokesman. So that made us closer. We were always able to talk because they were just afraid. So just just different things about life. And he used to always talk about how I, from my environment, from where I came from in the, in the city in Orange, from the projects to going to Seton Hall and to doing well there, both academically and socially. Um, we just had a lot of talks about that. I used to sit on the plane, rides with him and talk. I mean, I didn't have to, I don't know if I wasn't playing, if I was, wasn't was playing or sitting on the bench, I probably wouldn't have talked to him. But since I was playing, I didn't want any players to think I'm trying to kiss up to get more time because I was already, already getting time. So I could just talk to him as a person. It wasn't really, we didn't talk about basketball. Bill is known for liking to sit down and enjoy a cocktail. Have you ever had a chance to revisit life with coach post-playing days and, and have a cold one? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say I have, you know, at that time, when I was in school, you could drink at 18. So I've, I've been to coach's house during the season and had dinner there and had a glass of wine with him. Uh, when we had, when we played in Madison Square Garden and we took the bus, on the way back, there was always two cases of soda and two cases of beer for the team because you could drink at 18. That's probably why the pub at Seton Hall went bankrupt and was closed for a year. When we were doing my- <laughs> well, the athletes, they let you drink for free. So, yeah, I don't know when the law changed to be 21, but when I was in school, it was 18. All right, so let, let's fast forward. You're drafted 94th overall in the fifth round. I don't even have five rounds anymore nowadays of the NBA draft by the Boston Celtics. Now, ironically, the following year, they draft some guy named Larry Bird with the sixth pick overall. But that year in 1978-79, that Boston team still had a bunch of Hall of Famers. It was Tiny Archibald, Dave Cowens, JoJo White, and their leading scorer, Cedric Maxwell, was also on that roster. What was your experience trying to make that NBA team? Well, during the summer when I was working out for that team, um, I saw that they had made a trade and got or or got Tiny Archibald. Tiny wasn't with him the year before. And Tiny, I knew Tiny. He had would come to when I was at Seton Hall. 
he came and picked me and Glenn up a few times with Floyd Lane and took us to Wagner Center. And I worked out with Tiny a few times. So when Tiny, when I saw that in the paper, I said, well, I can't make this team. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, because they had seven veteran guards under contract when I went to camp. So I know it was going to be tough, but, you know, I just went up there and, and I think the first day, I probably didn't play as well as I could play. And Tiny said to me, like, what's wrong with you? You know, I said, well, you know, you got all these veteran guards that so play. So I started playing, you know, and Tiny was coming off an Achilles situation. Jojo White was coming off um, some type of injury. And Jojo and I didn't see eye to eye, but Tiny told me to give it to him. So I, I just did the best I could against him. So you, you didn't continue on and pursue a playing career like most players do. They look to like the international game to uh, expand their career. You got right into coaching. Well, why is that? I could have went to Spain to play. Uh, Boston wanted me to go up to Maine and play. They had a CBA team or a farm team, Eastern League, whatever they called it back then, to play for their team up in Maine. And then I could have went to Spain to play. But in reference to, I didn't want to go to Maine. And then in reference to Spain, a couple of weeks before I was supposed to go, I just, um, when I was supposed to sit down with my lawyer, I just said, I don't want to go because I really enjoy my family and friends coming to watch me play. And and I was, a, I was a pretty good student. So, I mean, it was okay. I mean, I went to Seton Hall. They gave me the scholarship. I got a degree. I didn't get used by basketball. So I, I got the degree. So I, I, I was content. I was happy. I, I was happy. You know, sometimes I look back because I look at Gerald Henderson, who um, Gerald Henderson came out the same year I did. I think he got drafted by Utah or something. And he got cut. But we had played in an all-star game against um, ECAC All-Stars against ACC. And we had to have a practice to see who was going to start. And I started, and it was on Channel 4. And I got MVP, and he was my backup. But the following year after I got cut from the Celtics, he tried out with the Celtics, and he became the point guard, and he has a, a ring and everything. So I look back at that, and, I, and you know, I know what happened when we played head up against each other. You know, and so I look at it, but then I look at a lot of guys that get caught up overseas and, you know, have bad experiences. So could life have been better? Yes. Could life have been worse? Yes. So I'm happy. I'm really happy. You didn't get used by the game of basketball, but you clearly gave back to the game of basketball. You move on to a coaching career that has a 31-year history coaching for schools in the high school game for Clifford Scott, East Orange, West Side, West Orange, and you amass a career record of 577 and 205, which includes numerous conference, county, and state titles. As Tom said earlier at the top of the show, third most victories in Essex County history, three state championships, four North Jersey state championships, 13 conference championships, five times named all area coach of the year and New Jersey state coach of the year as well. That's a lot of hardware there. It's a lot of hardware and a lot of teams that you've coached over the years and many championships, which one stands out the most to you or give me a few if, if you can't narrow it down. Well, not to brag, but I'm going to add two more to that list. I really feel because, you know, the, the, the parochial schools do so well because they recruit. So one of the things, I'm the winningest public school coach in Essex County history. So public school, the two guys ahead of me are parochial school coaches. Also, I'm the second winningest black coach in the history of New Jersey. Those two things stand out. In terms of the teams, you asked me what team? My second team 
and third team. When we won back-to-back state championships. On my second team, 80-81, I had uh, Mike Brown, who ended up playing in the NBA for 12, 13 years. He played with the Bulls before they went on the championship run. He got traded to Utah. He was a backup center for Utah Jazz. Then he ended up at Phoenix. And I just talked with him last week. But uh, I, um, Mike Brown, I had Troy Webster, who was the best player of a coach. They both ended up going to George Washington to play. But Troy, I had Troy Webster. And I, and I had quite a few players. But I had a, a my starting team was my point guard was six foot. Troy Webster was six three and a half, six four, And I had 6'5", 6'5", 6'10". That's a heck of a size for a public school. But what happened was we lost everyone but Troy. We lost four starters. And then the next year, we had the identical record, 24-3, and three, and was state champs again. So that team stands out because we lost everybody. And I didn't know if I could coach yet. You know, I mean, I, my first year, we were okay. We were 13-11. and 11. I had a really good point guard. But then I had a stacked team. Then when I lose four out of those five players, now this is when, all right, we got to see if you can coach. I mean, you do have the best player coming back, but still, you got to fill those other spots. And we did the same thing. So that's when I, that was a proven point to me that maybe I can do this a little bit. Maybe Raph taught me something. You, you named some great players there. What other players stand out in your memory for over those 31 years? There has to be some more. Oh, it's some. Derek Canada, who went to West Point and ended up going, graduating from my owner, who played with the Globetrotters for a while. Marquise Bragg, who went to Providence, who played in the NBA for a year. Ron Young, my first year, led the county in scoring. One of the best players ever, coach under six foot. A uh, guy by the name who just passed away last year, Robert James, was a point guard. Still has a Division three assist record. Averaged 13.5 assists for a season. So Rob James, Keith Roberts. There's so many. It's so many. I... I I don't want to name people and leave some out, but I had some players over, some good players. I had some really great point guards, in my opinion, that that I just think that's the most important position on the floor is your point guard. So, Greg, you initially retired back in 2010, but they came back to Coast West Orange. And at the time, you were quoted as saying, I think West Orange is a sleeping giant in basketball. It's my job to make sure local talent stays right here and comes to West Orange High School. Just kind of sounds like a lot of coach speak. So so what made it so hard to stay retired? I think I took the West Orange job in 13, 2013. I think I might have went to West Side in 2010. No, I actually retired in 2013. I retired from education in 2013. And I went to West Orange. I don't know. West the job at West Orange opened up and they have the best facility. They have the best gym in the county. They always had players. They just didn't seem to either players left and went to other schools, but they always have players in the town of West Orange. And I just wanted to see if I could do something with West Orange. Plus it was, you know, they, they had everything that I would need to run a good basketball camp for younger kids. They had everything I wanted. So I was here at West Orange. For, I was only here for three years, you know, and, and now the staff that's at West Orange, that's basically my staff. From my, my assistant, he became the head coach, and everybody got moved up. Um, and, and that's one of the things I like to do. Um, I have quite a few former players or former assistant coaches that are now head coaches at places, which which is good. It's more 
you know, I always like to groom coaches and I always ask coaches when they would interview with me, I ask them, do you want my job? And they don't know how to answer that. <laughs> to answer that because I actually don't want you if you don't want my job. I want you to want my job. I want you to want to be a head coach. Else, Who wants to just end up as an assistant on a high school level? I mean, you should want to be a head coach. So when you're young, when you're young. So I always, always ask, do you want my job? They look at me like, oh, I don't know how to answer this. But yeah, so I'm, I feel good that coaches, guys that have been with me and former players have gone on to be head coaches on high school level. So when you're at West Orange, it's got to be a little bit of recruiting happening because you've, you've got the prep right in town that's probably trying to get all those really good players. How'd you convince guys to stay with you? I didn't. Either you want to play with me or you don't. I'm going to play with whoever I have. That's why I've, I've never I never applied for a job at a parochial school or a school that where you can recruit at. I've been in public school all my life. I mean, I just think that there's more – I mean – not that there's no coaching with that. I mean, there's X's and O's, but you're going out and get players to fit your needs. Just give me, give me anybody, whoever comes, whoever walks in that door, I'll find a way to make it work. I'm going to try to make it work. So I never got into the recruiting part. Um, I want guys who want to play for me. Sometimes when you get into the recruiting part and you, and you talk to parents, what happens if a, a kid comes in who just transfers, who's better than the kid you recruited? And you made promises to this parent about her child's going to play. And I never wanted to get involved in that. I just, whoever comes and, and works hard, you'll play. I'm not going to come recruit you. Now, Mike and I were actually talking about things like this, where it's where the days of, you know, the town winning the state championship is kind of past. And it's difficult for public schools to continue and be strong. And now you've got kind of almost basketball factories. You've got like the Patrick School and other places that grab kids from all over the country. Do you think this has hurt high school basketball in general? Yeah, I, I think it hurts. I'm glad I'm out of it because a lot of parents, they just want too much or they think their kid's the next LeBron James. He could be a, a six-foot power forward in the eighth grade, just stronger than everybody they think he's going to go to high school and be a star when he's six foot and he's just stronger than everybody. You can't be an inside player at six foot. I think that the parents are really um, hurting the game. And, you know, that's my thing. I mean, coaches, I, I never try to get involved with the coaches. If you're at a school when you can recruit, you should recruit. I mean, that's just the way it is. I don't, I'm not mad when there was a year when, um, when I was at Clifford Scott, and Seton Hall Prep, we met them in the county final. They had Marcus Tony L, who went to Seton Hall. They had Marcus Tony L, Brevin Knight, uh, Brandon Knight, the youngest one who's at Rutgers. Um, Emil Mitchell and Kevin Carey. All four of those guys lived in the Clifford Scott District. They should have been at my school. We met them in the finals of the county tournament. So there was nine players and one kid from Newark starters in the Essex County final. They won. They beat us. I mean, they beat us. But just for a little small school, just think if I'd had all nine of those players. And I didn't have a problem with that. You know, I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, I kind of knew that Brandon Knight would go to prep. I mean, his father went to the prep. Mel, who was my assistant coach, his older brother went there. You know, Marcus Tony, oh, he might have been at Clifford Scott for a day, but he was registered in. <laughs> he was registered in, but I think they, they got to him. And I, I never had a problem with that. I mean, 
because parents just send their kids to where they feel comfortable. That's what you want. That's what you should do. All right, Greg, there's a little bit of an undertone that's like anti-recruiting. Let's do it right for the kids. You even talked about the fact that you're still connected uh, with the West Orange coaches. Damon Cowan is now coaching uh, at the head spot at West Orange High School, and you're still involved. You're actually part of the West Orange Elite Basketball Club. You even had another uh, endeavor, the Future Basketball Legends Camp that you used to run. What do you try to get out of teaching at these types of, of programs? Uh, well, the Future Legends Camp was my camp. I haven't done it in maybe three or four years because once I stopped being a head coach, you know, Demond should run a camp, and I just backed off, and I helped him. I set up how it, you know, basically how I thought it should be done, and I helped him out. And But now I'm getting ready back away from everything. I'm just going to be officially retired. But just, I, I love working with kids. I mean, I'm not, I've never been one, even though I have done it, I've never been that personal trainer. You know, there's guys that are out here who are personal trainers, then try to be coaches. And a lot of them aren't coaches. They're just personal trainers. They can get one kid ready for you. But they can't, they're not coaches how to do a team. And I think that's when people get confused. And always like running camps. I like to teach a group of kids. I never wanted to be the one where you pay me and I get your kid ready. I don't like that, guys. Other people do that. So I enjoy coaching kids. I mean, my my experience, I went to five-star basketball camp. I went to Oscar Robinson's camp. I was a camp kid. I went to camp, and that made me the better player. Some of my friends where I grew up, 10 of us went to Oscar Robinson, but nobody went to five-star. You know, nobody went to camp. I was fortunate enough to, that's what I wanted to do. So I went to everybody's camp. Even as a, two years ago was the last time I went to a coach's clinic. I mean, but I go to clinics. I just love basketball. I just love the teaching part of teaching masses of, of young kids, you know, young kids. It's just, as long as the parents stay out, you know, don't, don't come, don't come, don't come to the camp. Just drop your child off at 8.30, pick them up at 4.30. When they ask me, what does my child need to work on? I say everything. <laughs> Basketball. They said, what, what do you mean? I said, well, no one has mastered any part of basketball. So he needs to work on everything. But that trainer, that personal trainer would say, oh, he needs to work on his ball handling because he does this great. He does this great. He does nothing great. You know, he does absolutely nothing great. So he needs to work on everything. That's why I don't do the individual. That's why I do the big count, the big so while you were running your future legends camp, you were quoted as saying play is the reward for time put in to learn those important fundamental skills, as well as positive attitudes and sportsmanship. So would you not run games during these camps? And, and if the players didn't kind of buy into that team and self selflessness, you wouldn't let them on the court. Is that true? Oh, no, no, that's not true at all. That just, that quote just sounds good. No, <laughs> <laughs> they played a game. They played a morning game and they played an afternoon game, but it wasn't the most important, important thing. I mean, drills and skills. A lot of people try to skip the, that part. You know, I, I just, I try to run my camp, how I learned basketball. I would get up in the morning and because I live where I lived at in the housing projects, there was a court in the back. I would get up and go out early in the morning and practice drills. If my friends during the summer, let's say, if my friends, if we were going to meet at 9 o'clock and play, I would get out there in seven, at 7 because I believe that if we're going to play the same amount of time during the day, 
but I start two hours before you, there's no way you could be better than me. I used to think like that as a kid. So I used to do all the drills. When I went to five-star basketball camp after my sophomore year, every drill I learned, I got up every morning after that. And I did those drills. Even when school started in September, I was getting up before school, doing, going out doing those drills. But people just do drills at camp and never do them again because they want to play. Kids are so eager to play, to play, to play. And I say, no, you, you have to... You have to learn the, the technique. You have to learn the skills before you get out on the court to play, to be successful. Well, you were obviously successful in your high school, college, and coaching days, and the honors came flowing in. In 1986, you were inducted into the Seton Hall Athletic Hall of Fame. 2013, the 70th anniversary of the Essex County Tournament honored you both as a player and a coach. And then in 2019, NJ.com ranked you among the top 99 coaches in his, in New Jersey sports history. That's a huge accomplishment. I mean, 92, um, I'm, I'm betting you were a little more important than some of those lacrosse and cross-country guys that were ranked ahead of you. But all kidding aside, what kind of meaning do these have for you? Now, I spent a whole lot of years coaching. <laughs> <laughs> Those awards when you've been there a long time. But no, I mean, it means a lot. It means that, I mean, I feel as I was appreciated. Uh, um, but it's not me. I mean, you'll see my name, Greg Times, but it's all those players that, that I had. The players did that. You know, it wasn't me. I mean, I was a player. No coach never made that shot to win the game. He might he might have drew up a play, but, I, but the player still had to execute it. A lot of times we diagram things and it doesn't work and players improvise and score. So it may be my name, but all, that award goes to a whole lot of players, all the players that I had. Because like I said, they put the ball in the basket. Well, I, can, I can tell them anything, but you still got to put the ball. You got somebody trying to stop you from putting the ball in the basket and they put the ball in the basket. So it means a lot to me, but it, it also makes me think of, I would need to thank all my players because that's who actually put the work in. They put the work in. Like I always say, I'm like the guy driving a boat. I'm just steering the boat, but the boat can't move if there's no all car. It can't, with no engine, no pistons, no gas. It won't go anywhere. And all those players, they're that. So I was just the guy steering it. We got about another 10 minutes, Greg. You got any more coaching analogies you want to kind of parallel here? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so, so Greg. If a writer's writing the Greg Tynes story, what's the one sentence that could encapsulate you and and make you most proud? I mean, it's really, I guess it's just something simple that, I mean, I did the best that I could. I wasn't perfect and I didn't do everything right, but I did the best that I could at the time. You know, coaching is, you know, this is longer than a sentence, but coaching, a lot of people sit in the stands that think coaching is easy. But you have to, when you call that timeout because the team is making a run, you have 15 seconds to think about what you're going to do, 30 seconds to tell it to your guys, and 30 seconds on a high school because you only got a minute, and 15 seconds to hopefully they got it. If not, you got to tell them again. So you got to do it really quick. But, you know, the guy, the Monday morning coach who's sitting there, he said, oh, I don't know why I did this. I would have did this. Yeah, we all know what, what you <laughs> You're looking at him. You're looking at him right here. Yeah, yeah. So so I just said I did the best I could, you know, 
at the time, I, you know, I, I wouldn't change anything, even when things didn't come out right. Even when I tried to press one of Seton Hall Prep's team, when they had Brandon Knight, the oldest one, and they blew us out. <laughs> so, I mean, I still would do the same thing because that was, I had a pressing team. I had to do what was best for my team. You know, you just destroyed our in-season weekly reviews, Greg. That's all we do is sit there and second guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, before we let our guests leave, we make them walk the plank. We're going to ask you five rapid-fire questions. We're hoping for five rapid-fire answers. Don't give it too much thought. First thing that pops to the top of your head, go with it. Are you yeah. ready for this, Greg? Okay, here we go. Question number one. Most points scored in any game at any level? High school, 38. Which team was your biggest arch rival? East Orange. Toughest road environment? East Orange. <laughs> Toughest opposing player that you've gone up against? Phil Ford. Best SHU player you've ever seen play? Mel Knight. Bonus question. In your opinion, greatest New Jersey high school basketball coach of all time. Oh, Bob Hurley. <laughs> Congratulations, Greg. You've walked a plank. Is, is there that big of a gap between Bob Hurley Sr. and everybody else on that list? Yes. Why yes. so? He's the GOAT. I mean, he's uh, <laughs> um, Because, you know, you, you, have, you have some coaches, so I won't mention names, who was at some of these other parochial schools. They may have... 10, 11 high school All-Americans. I mean, they got everybody. Bob Hurley would have two or three. I mean, his bench, he had average high school players on the bench. He didn't have like 10, 10 players that would start at every school in the county. He had three or four, you know, and and plus he can coach. I mean, he, can, he, he knows his X's and O's. He's just not a guy that just had talent. He knew his X's and O's before St. Anthony's got on the map, you know. So um, I just think he's he's the best. There's another guy who I think is a great coach who you never heard of, a guy by the name of Roger Blinn. He was at St. Peter's for a while as a head coach, but he's a he coached in high school at at Livingston. I mean at Milburn at Milburn. He just never had talent. He knows X's and O's is always a chess match, but he's not in Bob Earl. Nobody's in Bob Earl's club. Nobody, nowhere. <laughs> well, Greg, we can't thank you enough for coming on again. We loved you the first time. We love you again. And it's great that we get to take these stories from Seton Hall and from after Seton Hall and share it with everybody. We really appreciated your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. I didn't know it was going to be this long. And you got some real, you got, no, I don't mind the time. You guys did some research. <laughs> That's what we do. We, we want to get that story out because we think it's important. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Danny Calandrillo, Adrian Griffin, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Left Coast Pirates.